0: All right, another week inside, another episode. This is the sixth in this series um, that are really more about the guests and their work, but always touch on what's going on in the world right now. Uh, Just to note, this is recorded on April 7th, so, you know, our speculation, um, which I tried to keep more forward thinking this time as opposed to talking about what's happening right now, um, but still, just in case you want to know when we said this, so that you're not know, like, "Oh, well, this is all incorrect." Um, anyway, today with Dr. Ale Babino, who has a really interesting career and um, a more unique identity than some of the other some of the uh, other folks that you may hear from, not on this show, but just when people talk about um, different intersecting. Uh, features of bilingual education. So it's really interesting to hear her perspective um, and some of her thoughts and some of the work that she's done. And I hope that you enjoy the episode. So welcome back, folks, to Unsaturdayed English. Once again, another one of these conversations I've been having with interesting people in this shall we say, interesting time. Today, I'm here with Dr. Ale Babino, and we are going to talk about, well, as ever, we're going to talk about a bunch of things. But first, I'm going to have her introduce herself and tell all of you a little bit about what she has done and what she's been doing in her very interesting career so far. So welcome, Dr. Babino.
1: Thank you, Justin. I appreciate that. Um, it's almost hard to know where to begin because I feel like maybe like you, so much of my teaching and research stems um, from my personal life growing up as a bilingual and bicultural person. Um, I appreciated that you asked how I identify myself and I hope we get to talk about that more um, because it for sure has changed over the course of my life and I would say as I continue to serve my student population or my community I see myself more clearly as I understand who they are more clearly as well, and our similarities and differences. So um, long story short, I began my professional career as a high school Spanish teacher. I was there for two years because I started my master's soon afterwards in curriculum and instruction. And I realized, wait a minute, how people actually (laughs) learn language? I think I learned something like 3% of people who take a foreign language in high school actually become proficient in that language. And I thought, well, shoot, if I'm going to dedicate my life to something, I want a success rate higher than 3%. And so um, in learning that, and then again, I was introduced to Paulo Freire in critical pedagogy. I developed a love for bilingual education because it was something that I hadn't experienced myself. As a second generation Mexican American. And so I became a fourth grade bilingual teacher over several different language programs and did that for a total of 11 years. And that takes us to where I am now as an assistant professor and director of bilingual and ESL education, I'm teaching undergrads, masters, and doctoral students.
0: So there's I want to go into, because you mentioned your identity, and I want to sort of go into that because that's sort of what got us talking online a while ago. Mm -hmm. Um, But before we do that, as I mentioned, you know, 10 minutes ago, one of the things in your career that you've done is you have a certification in gifted and talented students, or the actual wording might be different than that, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Um, Because every state writes a different thing on their little certificates. Um, And I'm interested in that because... um, I, with my own personal experience, I went to a a gifted and talented school, Mm -hmm. right? Everybody was gifted and talented or everybody was designated gifted and talented. So I've spent time researching now that I'm back in school, like Mm -hmm. who gets placed in the gifted and talented classes and who doesn't get placed in them. But then I realized that I hadn't even thought about that because everyone in my school was considered as such. So it wasn't, Like, oh, well, the black kids or like that, that that just wasn't part of it. We were all there. But then, um, so the reason I'm saying that is because Mm -hmm. um, the conversations you must have had when you were first doing gifted and talented work um, before you went into a doctoral program or maybe it was, I don't know what the timeline was or which one Mm -hmm. was was first there. Um, How do you... The, the way in which you think about gifted and talented programs or gifted and talented designations or classifications, how has that shifted over the years, if it has? And, you know, what are some of the things that, what are some of your impressions of the way gifted and talented labels are applied, um, both in your context and in just in the research that you've done?
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely. I love those questions. So first, I would say that much of my experience, like anyone's, is situated um, in the district and school that I was in. So I feel like to really do those answers justice, I really need to explain those nexus in a way. And so um, the district I was a part of um, was led by a dual language program director, as well as a gifted and talented director that wrote a book on serving culturally and linguistically diverse students in gifted programs. So I would say that they were very much progressive in the sense of having um, multiple measures of identifying students in um, more culturally sustaining ways of serving students starting at the elementary level um, and continuing on until middle school and high school. Now we know the outside social pressures are so hegemonic that it can counter a lot of even good work done at the local level. And so I'm um, at that exact school that I taught at. It was the largest school in our area and uh, was also the poorest and the oldest and the most um, Latinx. And so I think 80, 98% of our school population was Latinx. Um, and about 88% were designated as English learners. And just about 98% were receiving free and reduced lunch. So segregated beyond segregation. Yeah. <laughs> right. So our entire almost school population was Latinx, many times first generation Mexican-American. And so um, I had taught at the school for several years before I was asked to interview for the position. And so I had already seen and experienced that type of community, meaning that I had thought that growing up as second generation, that I understood the immigrant experience. I thought I understood even being a white Mexican American, that I understood a minoritized position. But of course, I quickly saw over the first couple years how um, divergent our experiences were because of how we're differently, multiply minoritized, right? And so because of the good fortune, I would say, of our directors, that we had um, multiple measures that didn't require require language for students to be identified. And so um, usually there's a battery of assessments, some that look for mathematical gifting, um, linguistic gifting, so that could be English or Spanish for our population, but also nonverbal. And so um, what I found was not only did we need multiple measures but we needed different criteria, meaning um, different thresholds. Because of what um, we found through our practice and research that our cognitive abilities, now there may be some some disagreement of course across the field but our cognitive abilities abilities aren't just innate but they can be um further developed so you might be familiar with growth mindset yeah popularized by um carol dweck out of stanford and of course has been taken up um to varying degrees i would argue across the nation and so that suggests that our cognitive abilities are far more flexible and um able to grow than we previously thought maybe 20 30 years ago and so I had seen and what our district had done is create what they called planned experiences or these rich experiences kindergarten through third grade for students so that they would have the opportunity to develop cognitive and linguistic giftings and so it wasn't just um, assessing what kind of background you came from right? Or what school you were at? Because at the time, we had had schools that um, they say, depending on what research you read, that there's anywhere between one to three percent of the population is gifted. And in the state of Texas, where I am, we're allowed to serve up to 10% of our student population. But we know that Our populations are very much, um, for better or for worse, well, always for worse, segregated, I would argue, except for sometimes. Um, And so because of that, we would have schools where nearly 40% of their school population was in gifted programming or like, Is really 40%? I'm like, well, maybe. But then we would have schools like mine where maybe 1% of the student population was represented. And so um, our director in concert with some educators created more local norming of what's the top 10% from those of like backgrounds. So if we're all starting at different starting points, we're comparing starting point to like starting point and what experiences they receive in their schooling so that they can develop those gifts and talents.
0: So there's a lot, that's really interesting to me. There's a lot that that goes into all of that. I mm-hmm. think about a couple of things because I think that like growth mindset, I, I found out about, I don't know, like seven years ago, something like that, um, when it was sort of really coming, coming mm-hmm. this or whatever. And, um, and I got really into it for, for a bit. Um, and then I realized that I think that the idea is, is, is sound and in a context not like the one you're talking about. Right. Like, in, a, in other contexts, it can be used to, like, to sort of punish people. You know what I'm saying? Oh,
1: definitely. Uh, I would say it would probably many times do more harm because, right, it's taking an individual perspective. Right. It's a systemic perspective. And no. so that's why I wanted to share our specific district in school because we had a lot of local systems in place that tried to break down some barriers, but by no means eliminated them.
0: Well, right. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's 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 not even to criticize what you were saying at all. It's more like, how do you think that? Obviously, it came from leadership, but you know, how do you think that um, your district was mm-hmm. able to avoid some of those pitfalls, where you know the idea in itself is not necessarily harmful or or harmless, mm-hmm. but is used to support, to reify the, you know, oppression. Um, mm-hmm. And you all seem to have, I mean, you know, like you said, for the most part, uh, avoided falling into those traps. So like, what are some of the ways that you, like, aside from just saying, I'm not going to do that as a district, right. I mean, like, you know, um, that they really sort of invested in the humanity of their students. Like, I, I guess you sort of answered the question by starting with like points. Um, but still, it's. I think it's an interesting question because a lot of places will just, They'll, they'll hear, like, well, I found, you know, the solutionitis or whatever it is. Right. Um, you know, yeah. like, oh, I found the solution. Yeah, you, you don't have growth mindset. That's why you failed. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's it's, mm-hmm. I don't know. I
1: love that question, too, because I would say that's a recurring one on the back burner for me is always how do we make systems change practically? And maybe we'll get to talk about later um, my particular paradigm when it comes to research and practice. Um, my colleague and I like to say that we're critically pragmatic. In this- tend to be two separate paradigms, but we describe in our upcoming book how they're very much um, related. So in relation to this particular question, um, over a couple programmatic studies, because I really like to look at systems, um, when I look at the phenomenon of bilingualism and biliteracy in schools, I would say that there's a collective agency at the leadership level. And so what I mean by that is it wasn't just the dual language director, it was also the GT director. And they collectively um, galvanized their agency to make change at the system level. But then they also had to have coalitions, I can say that um, with those that are on the ground with grassroots movement. And so that might be other minoritized teachers. For us, it was so much of our lived experience, right? Um, I had seen over the course of my life. And then at that time, over years of teaching um, that people are capable Everyone, you hear that in education, right? That we believe everyone can learn, but we all have a different starting point. Not only, I would argue, internally with our cognitive abilities, but also externally as they're able to interact and potentially grow with our context. And so um, I would say taken together between that collective agency with the leadership and then with the educators, that's how we were able to, Um, I would say usurp the um, status quo, right? Of just the same kids being identified over and over and the same being excluded from gifted programs.
0: So I want to ask you specifically mentioned you brought it up and I was curious about it. So we'll get to your lens. Like that's next. I'm going to say this thing first and then we'll go and then lens is next. It's the next thing. So, um, I wonder with that, like being critically climatic, or I guess that is the lens. So we we may end up encompassing that anyway in the answer to this question. But my thought is like, I hear what you're saying, and I, I agree with you. I think that you know, they have to be mutually invested. You know what I'm saying? They can't it can't mm-hmm. just be one side and other parts getting dragged along behind. It's not going to work. They're going to stop at some point, or they're going to they're going to point to something and they're going to give up. Um, or and it can't just come from from above like just from above like right. someone there's some leader who comes in and says you're going to do this culturally sustaining thing or whatever it is but just something you know anti-oppressive anti-racist whatever because if the people who are actually in the classroom don't buy in well it's not gonna work right <laughs> um and similarly if the people in the classroom have these great ideas uh and they go to the leadership to say here's what i'm gonna do and the leadership says no it's not gonna work uh to some you know to some extent like this it really does have to be collaborative like you're saying but how and this is maybe too big of a question but i think it it sort of aligns with being critically pragmatic is you know how do you get those people into the place of being able to make such decisions who are people that already have that mindset or do you change people's mindset when they get to the position you know what i'm saying because right. if someone gets to the position and they don't have that mindset, do you work on them to change at that point? Or do you work to get someone into the position who, who has that mindset? Like, it's I, yeah. I, a question, you know what I'm saying?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's kind of a chicken and, or the egg thing. But.
1: Yes, and I would say both. Um, because as school leaders, you have who you have when you're starting. And that all has collaborative impact on our students and so the good for good and for ill right and so we train our current people to become more culturally sustaining and anti-racist but then we also want to choose or interview and have join our team those that are already that way and um have them through peer. Um, Teaching and peer planning be able to share those perspectives. Um, Of course, that takes time. I think the educational leadership literature says something like three to five years to see that kind of change. But then what happens people leave. And I think especially in high poverty schools that are often positioned as at risk, like our um, turnover was cataclysmic. We had a staff of about 10 at any time, about 100 people. Every year we would have anywhere between 15 and 30 people leave. And so in the nine years I was at this particular campus, we were having the same professional developments, for the entire nine years I was there. We were always starting at ground zero because we had a new team to to train and to um, learn how to collaborate with one another. And so I just feel like all of these systems are just too heavy and too burdensome to really be able to be used in a way collectively that could actually lead our students forward at this one particular school because um, every time you would approach state standards for what's considered adequate yearly progress, they would change the the finish line. And then another three to five years, you would almost get there and then they would change the finish line. And so in my work, I saw not only students being systematically dehumanized, but also their teachers of just like failure, 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 that you're doing everything in your power as an individual person. And it's not enough, which has really led me to be so passionate about school systems and how they work in concert or against um social factors as well
0: so i think about so i am in school um as you know but just to whatever um and uh i'm not a k-12 teacher um not i the only time i taught k-12 was when i taught overseas in korea Mm -hmm. um i taught high school then i came home and i didn't know what to do with myself so I teaching English and then I just said okay I don't know what I'm doing so I'm gonna get a master's degree mm-hmm. um because I was like I, I'm, I'm not I don't know I don't know how to do this uh <laughs> so I got a master's degree and then but the way that the, the my, both my experience thus far and also just where the jobs were in New York I, right. I wanted to work with adults and also because there's a lot of people who need to teach adults like people they want to learn a language so um you know they deserve to have the best teachers just like anybody else
1: mm-hmm.
0: um and I just sort of became committed to like you know a lot of people leave that field to do some to do something else to leave the adult education world to do something else um and I can you know I stayed committed to that but all that I'm saying is that now that I'm back in school almost all of my my classmates are K12 teachers so I hear these stories from them And I'm just like, "Ah, I feel like I'm not legitimate. (laughs) But um, because it's just like that sort of thing. Like I read the research about how there are actually, you know, people think that public school teachers are doing a bad job, but a lot of the time it's just because they leave. Um, And, you know, some of the most difficult stuff is simply being a new teacher who doesn't know. They don't have the experience. And a lot of the, the, the learning loss or whatever is because the teacher who has the capability of becoming excellent. It's just right. new. It's just new. And then the school has spent all their time retraining people. Uh, and they're just like, you, you know, how, the school might think, okay, this new group of people is going to be the most amazing group of people. But if you've been through nine groups of people, mm-hmm. are you really going to put the same effort in to the 10th group of people? And you've you you know, it's, you've been doing this, not you, but one who's been doing this like 20 years, you're just like, yeah, you'll be gone next year, so whatever. Um, and that's a problem. Um, yeah. And you know there's a whole lot of reasons for that problem. but I think it's like it is a people you know, we talked a moment ago about the individualizing of problems. Um, and it's like there is a way to look at the individuals involved to identify problems because, like we the group of individuals leaving is a problem, but the problem isn't the individuals themselves most of the time. Mm-hmm. You, you see, you see what I'm saying in terms of the okay. way I'm trying to frame that. I, mean, I know you get it, but I'm, I'm just trying to frame it like you, th- there is no systems without individuals, but right. the problem isn't this one teacher is bad. Like right,
1: mm-hmm.
0: so um, like because that's a really systematic issue of the The teacher turnover, um, and the fact that, you know, things still have to happen while people are being replaced. Right. Um, and then there's also, I'm sure the teachers who are on their way out aren't teaching necessarily as well as they could be teaching. So it's like, it's like a uh, congressmen who's, you know, those, their, their term is two years. Well, okay, they probably have three or four months before they have to start fundraising again, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Run, running for the next term. And so they're just yeah. like, you know, um, anyway. So you talked, so now that I've said a lot around, around in a big circle. So can you describe in your v- words, the way that you see critical pragmatism or is it critically pragmatic?
1: Either one. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and there's lots of different ways. And again, um, we'll really detail it in our book coming out at the end of the year. But first I would say that by saying we're critically pragmatic, we're not saying that to be critical, you can't be pragmatic. There's so many critical scholars that I highly regard, and I know they, I'm sure you follow them on Twitter as well, um, and they often cite that people say that they're not pragmatic enough or they're not practical enough. And so I don't mean to say that critical scholars can't be pragmatic in the same way that pragmatic scholars can't be critical. Instead, by including both of those terms, um, we really seek to highlight the central purpose and worldviews behind both terms. And so the critical should always lead and um, the pragmatism should always be subjected to the criticality. And so that's just acknowledging, of course, you know, the natural or not so natural stratification of human beings and societies, that there'll always be some kind of hierarchy and the place of all of our social identities in um, allowing those to have various levels of privilege and minoritization so that um, in any certain situation, we have these multiple identities that we're either engaging in or not engaging in, and then further create or disin. Um, disinvest our own agency and I believe that um, is so context specific within the same person but also our social cultural histories have a great impact on that and so the critical part is acknowledging that it's acknowledging the stratification and that our goal is to liberate not only ourselves across context but also um, to amplify the voices of others that are often minoritized in different contexts. And then the pragmatism means that we'll employ almost any means necessary for different contexts. And so the methodologies and the theories I employ talking to a K-12 teacher may be different than someone, if I'm talking to a researcher, or if I'm talking to someone at the beginning of their career, or if we're talking to the general public, because our end goal is always um, freedom and the thriving of people.
0: I wonder um, within that, because it's a conversation I always have, whether it's inside my head or just with other people about pragmatism. and, um, Like, uh, aside from the fact that obviously people who are in school or you know, maybe may looking for jobs and so forth, so they have to get publications out, so I get it. But, um, like, there's, there's always the issue of, I don't really want to, me personally, like Justin, want to read too much research that that doesn't seem like it is going to really um you know it it doesn't seem like it has a lot of of weight to it you Mm -hmm. know what I'm saying yeah um now obviously that's coming from my own lens what what has weight is is Mm -hmm. not objective you know um nor should I pretend that that is the case um I know and and I don't just mean, when I say weight, I don't just mean that it, it, it aligns with my own particular angle, right? Because like, although I may be more focused on race and language than myself, you know, someone who's operating from a gender angle or more of a religious right. angle, like, I don't discount that. It may not be my angle, but that, that's still weight. You
1: know mm-hmm. what I'm saying?
0: When And in case people aren't really listening, I mean, weight like W-E-I-G-H-T. But <laughs> <laughs> I know you get that, but I'm just saying. Um, but like, on the other hand, when I say wait, in the sense that I feel like if it, if implemented, that's you know someone could really you know, make some changes. Yeah, I get frustrated sometimes, especially at conferences um, and in conversations too, but mostly at conferences where people present things and it's um, you know somewhat theoretical, but clearly has an arrow pointing towards how things could be changed, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But because it's not purely like a lesson plan, Mm -hmm. you hear the people who are just like, but what am I supposed to do in the classroom? And I'm just like, but... And like, uh you know, but like, you know, I, I don't want to really do it if I, if I don't take any takeaways. I'm like but this this takeaways right there, like right wow.
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and I don't know how to get through that that attitude. like the most popular like talks at at conferences are like, and here is this this uh, company selling this product, and this mm-hmm. is the, this is the most popular talk, and it's like. And then it's just like, ah, uh, how do you how do you get away from that, that reality that people are just maybe the concept is really cognitive load? Like some people or or maybe cognitive load is just an excuse. I I mentioned this in a recent podcast episode, um, where uh people will always say if you ask them, like if you actually sit someone down for some research, right? Mm-hmm. And you ask them, you know. Why is it that if someone points out that if you were to do something in a culturally sustaining way, it would be better for your students and you don't do it? And the person's never going to say that they have biases or whatever. They're not going to admit that. But they'll say, well, it's just too much work. And what I said was, you know, when I think about it, if I hadn't spent any time thinking about anti-oppressive work, it probably is a hell of a lot of work to have to mm-hmm. try to change the way you do things in that right. way. So they just like, please tell me what lesson plan I can do to make it stop and I will do it. Mm-hmm. But like what people need to change is their mindset um, mm-hmm. or their framework, I should probably say. And right. uh, that is always my big question of how do you change people's frame, frame of mind?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so that's why I think the pragmatism is important. And it's also still like, I wonder how many people um, see the two as aligned, you know, the, right. the critical and the pragmatism. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's a rhetorical question. You can answer it if you want to, but.
1: <laughs> so can you repeat the question? Well, then? the question
0: is like, you know, that nine minute question that I just asked you is, in. in, in I, I get a little, um, you know, disappointed in the fact that people don't really want to engage in things that are challenging because Mm -hmm. they just want things hand, you know, spoon fed to them. But then, um, I wonder how to get people to see that being pragmatic can also be critical. Like, how do you convince people of that? Like you're doing, you're, you're doing this work, but how do we get people who aren't in the choir?
1: I see. So, um, part of my work is preparing also student teachers and so while um, most of my work is with bilingual and esl teachers there's also general education teachers those that don't have a specific certification beyond just teaching in the general classroom and so what we do in our seminars and so they're in the classroom a certain amount of days a week and then they come to seminar is that we have a series of sessions and i don't mean to say that this is the magic bullet that this is what we're doing. Um, But what we do do is have a series of sessions where we provide some lived experiences for them so that they can notice um, patterns, um, notice their feelings in these situations. And then uh, we begin to provide additional experiences that then Um, we pose additional questions and at the beginning of each of these sections or sessions, I'm sorry, um, we provide a series of what we call permission slips and so this is based off of Brene Brown's work that in hard conversations she gives her team's permission slips that you're allowed to feel this way and so we have a list of like nine different permission slips that says it's okay if my ideas change or it's okay to feel uncomfortable. If I am an educator, I want to understand various standpoints. If I care about my students, I need To understand various standpoints and so it's not only an expectation but it's also an invitation into this kind of thinking as a critical educator over the space of days and we balance the tension of holding students accountable with providing space to process um, by allowing them various levels of engagement and so that can mean listening sometimes but not just listening all the time. And um, that may um, be them talking in small groups or it may be talking in front of the class. And we have a specific time where we um, have breakouts into affinity groups, um, particularly around um, race or ethnicity, where we get to talk with like groups of students and faculty about our unique issues and um, positionalities and how that affects our work. As educators. And so I would say there's a current of um, current research in bilingual education, or I should say critical bilingual education, talking about Paulo Freire's critical consciousness, um, where you acknowledge tensions or contradictions in society, but you're also equally um, needed to act on those. And so we go through those sessions. Okay, what are we acknowledging? What are we acting upon? And so um, that's kind of a framework that we use. And I would say in general um, is managing those tensions of, okay, your ideas need to change right now, because they're seriously harmful for students in providing people with time, some kind of humane process to do that. And I admit that with my own positionality, that's very complicated. And so we make sure that we have whatever's represented in our classroom represented in our faculty. And so that means gender, that means race, ethnicity, languages, citizen status um, to be able to reflect those realities.
0: So do you get Because you talk about that you just said some of the students have harmful ideas. Do you get a lot of pushback in these sessions, especially from the general education teachers? Or do you even get pushback from, like, an ESL teacher? Because
1: Mm -hmm. there's
0: no particular reason why they wouldn't have harmful ideas.
1: (laughs) Not to my face. Yeah. Like, I am shocked. And again, I admit my privilege, like, as a white Mexican-American. But I... For better, for worse, I think they see me and read me as white, so i'm quote unquote safe but i'm like i'm not going to talk like i don't want to say you're average white person, but um I don't just have a white experience um and so For whatever reason, we don't, to our face, have that kind of feedback. And um, one of our, um, one of my recent book chapters, From Me to We, talks about how we did that um, with creating humanizing pedagogies, but in terms of LGBTQ youth, Um, because we're in a very conservative part of a very conservative state. And so um, we talk through how over a series of three semesters we made programmatic changes that required all teachers to engage in to move towards um, more allyship really.
0: I wanted want to go down that path but I can't.
1: I know there's too many good things to
0: talk about. Uh, well we know we're gonna talk again anyway so you know but um, okay. so um, well maybe maybe I could go down the path because if the whole point, cause like I actually have more structured research questions when we do, when we talk again. So those are more about identity mm-hmm. and so forth. So maybe I'll just leave it. But um, how do you think that um, your own identity has, imp- I mean, big question here and again, some of it we'll, we'll rehash later, but um, has impacted your you know, ability to have those conversations. I mean, like you, I, if I'm in that situation myself, they're not telling me the same things they're telling you, you know, they're just not Uh going to do it. They think, again, like they say, they see you as a, as a a safe spot, like, okay, well, those other people, we don't have to tell them this stuff, but what I really think is this. And it's Mm -hmm. like, um, in a way, your identity can be sort of a weapon against their, um, you know, what ignorance or whatever you want to call it, Mm
1: -hmm. you know,
0: it's sort of like, uh, Maybe what they learn is that there is no safe space for these thoughts and maybe yeah. I shouldn't have them. This yes. is just what I'm presupposing. I have a lot of theories on this that I want to use in the future about like uh, white identified people speaking to people who think that they're going to agree with their ignorance. Oh,
1: behavior. I have some stories. <laughs>
0: Let's, we have to save that for the next time. Um, but uh, yeah, because like you even, ha- I mean, it happens to me for like gender, right? Like right. men tell me, I'm just like, what? When I'm like 16, I would like laugh, right? But then like, as an, I'm like, no, 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 no. Why did you think that I would? Anyway, um, so now to get to these things, uh, you work, I mean, now you, you work in academia, but like your, your field you know is in bilingual education,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: you can remember back to that school which you worked at for 11 years. And now, I don't know what's going on in Texas. Are they in school? I mean, I assume everyone no, no. okay. I mean, I know they're not in school here, but I, I don't know if they, right. they were being really stubborn because you know they're talking about well, grandma wants to die for the economy or whatever they were saying now, right? Um, so I cannot imagine that every single person in that school has really strong access to computers and technology. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm thinking about how, what has happened in 2020 has created mm-hmm. an entire world of students with interrupted formal education, mm-hmm. even if they don't want to call it that. Right. Uh, and we know the research on that. So, and then of course there's the, it, it, uh, like the language on top of that. So mm-hmm. like, ha- you don't work there anymore, but, um, the, I mean, I guess, what do you think, you know, like, what, what do you think we're going to have, we're going to, we're not, we don't know anything yet, but what we're, we're going to have seen when we start to be able to gain information about all of these students at schools like that, when, I don't know, in the fall or whenever people are back where they're going to be.
1: hmm So I would say, or I would hope what's come to the forefront, at least what I get to see um, on social media through my friends and colleagues that are still in the district, is that what has been further heightened is that schools are not just schools, that they are central social um, means for good as they provide free breakfast, lunch, libraries, technology, and some districts in our area have even provided free hotspots and have gone into the communities to provide the materials they need, technology and otherwise. And so for me, what I see is a further exemplification and really a highlight of how much schools really do um, and try to push back what I would just say is outright evil and the um, the, dis- the distribution of wealth, right? Um, and so for me, as horrible as inequity is, I see so much good that can happen at schools. Um, of course, at the very same time, I realize they're not ameliorating everything, right? Um, there's still students and families that are hard hit and falling through the cracks, but I see so much incredible social good um that my colleagues get to do and so um i would say one of one of the most frustrating things as a critical educator is the deprofessionalization of educators in the public and so if anything i feel like this again further um entrenches how much we really do uh
0: I I was reading a book, um, the history of disability in the United States uh, for my class on disability. And one of the things I noticed, I actually talk about this in one of the episodes that hasn't come out yet, um, is that in the colonial period, uh, they're mentioning how disability is treated. And there's like, here was a man who like, if it was today, we would have a diagnosis for him. But mm-hmm. basically, he, he, you know, he was schizophrenic or something. and He had heard voices, talked to himself. something. It's um, not to dismiss him. I'm just saying those were the symptoms. And, right. you know, so they, like, put him in a room and gave him some food. But he also taught the kids. So it's like, it was like the, uh-huh. the, the, the people that they didn't know what to do with. Okay, well, they're the teachers. So, like, I, I say this to say that every... It sort of go there's like it like goes up and goes down every so often we have this period where educators are greatly respected and they're Mm -hmm. they're seen the way they are in some other countries where like when I was in Korea educators are very well respected uh you know it's like one of the highest things you can do and I'm talking like k-12 teachers you know Mm -hmm. um but then possibly because it is a very female profession these days uh it's just seen as like Something people do because they don't know what else they don't know what else to do. So now they're going, oh, we'll just be a teacher. I even my, my alumni magazine from college. Uh, it's always about how, oh, well, the man is, is a partner in this law firm and she's right. a teacher. Um, <laughs> the way the way it's framed, it's like oh, mm-hmm. and she's a school teacher. Oh, good for her, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who will probably quit when she has kids, right? That like that just because of the school that I went to, like the guy has the money that she could quit when she was. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, it's not seen as essential. And then all of a sudden now, like uh, they, uh, one would hope that it would lead to people seeing what teachers do. But one thing that I'm seeing unfortunately i'm seeing I'm, well no i'm seeing both of these things I mean, I, maybe it's just the circles that i run in but
1: mm-hmm.
0: um i guess that's all the internet now because that's all we have but uh there's a group of people who are saying thank you to the essential workers medical work all this is great right and then there's some people who include teachers in there because they see that what teachers are doing and all this extra work they're doing and there's some people who are not including teachers in there because the teachers are not physically out in the field Mm -hmm. and so forth and uh I don't really understand the second group (laughs) but uh like there will always be people who are dismissing the efforts of teachers because you know oh well they get this many months off a year it's like I
1: don't
0: I don't really know what to do about that um but it concerns me that there there is um, you know what I'm saying it deeply concerns right. me there'll always be this contingent of people who think that teaching is just something that people do
1: mm-hmm. yeah and I wouldn't um argue that at all no, And I, I think that part of the pragmatism too is like leaving that space for various viewpoints but still having the patient impatience to continue and to move forward and to um even continue in hope. And I would say you have to fiercely fight for that hope because it is exhausting um, to what you feel like to give all of yourself. And then you feel like the system is still against you or the end result didn't happen for your student.
0: I don't know. Um, I think it's, it's just still seen as this like little baby step job. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I'll do this and then then I'll just go be an adult after that. Um, Like whether it was the type of teaching I did overseas, where you really didn't have to have any kind of credential besides having any kind of college degree. Um, uh, But I chose to care about my job. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to, but I chose to. Um, Or we're talking about... um, how many people I knew again from my college who were like, yeah, you know, I did teach for America, and then, right. and then, and then, you know, I went off to do my real career. Mm. Um, and it's just like, uh, I'm not sure that. And these are just people who are just like, you know, like teaching is just something you can do because you're smart. Like that's all you need is to be smart, and therefore, or sorry, academically, you know. Right, uh, gifted, and therefore you can be a teacher. It's like, well, it doesn't hurt. Like it's, I'm not going to say it's bad. Right, it's not the same skill at all.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and I don't really know how to change that that public opinion because um, it's still often even pitched that way to people mm-hmm. um, when the career starts. I think. Right.
1: I don't have yeah, That's a huge pet peeve. I would say as someone maybe like you that was always positioned as academically gifted in school, I was very discouraged from education. Um, And so I had thought, well, I had been told, well, if you're smart and you're good at writing, you should be a lawyer. Um, And so it was actually in the year before I was going to law school that I partook in a Women's Leadership Program, and that's when I became a high school Spanish teacher, and I realized one of the most satisfying and challenging things as really teaching for me because it requires not just all of your intellectual faculties, but also your affective abilities and long-term endurance. I would say to really see change, like I saw a community change like after nine years. And so I think when you plant yourself and you plant roots in a community, like you teach um, students and you teach their cousins and their friends and you see the whole families come through throughout the community. And then you even see the teaching staff change in culture. Um, I think one of my favorite books by Paolo Freire is Teachers as Cultural Workers. And so it's like, yes, we we can create culture in um, the context we traverse. And so um, all that to say, I agree with you and... um, I think it's just a deep-seated um, belief and ethos of who you want to be as a human being and your impact in the world. Um, really quick, one of, my, one of my other favorite quote-unquote poems is by Mother Teresa. And it's Do It Anyways. I don't know if you've seen it, um, but it's something to the degree of I have it on my phone, like as the backdrop. Oh, I just lost it. But it's like, people will criticize you, will be unreasonable, forgive them anyway. If you, will ki- if you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish motives, be kind anyway. If you're successful, you will win some false friends, succeed anyway. And it continues throughout the poem. And so to me, it's just, again, is, is that um, deep knowing of who you are as a person and how you wanna be in the world.
0: I think that one of the reasons that uh, you know teaching has stuck with me and there, I haven't always been good at it, there have obviously been days when I haven't, but um, is that I was able to tap into the best parts of myself when I was in the classroom.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and that doesn't mean again that the bad parts of myself didn't come through on occasion. <laughs> Um, I've certainly been at both my best and my worst in the classroom, but um, especially when I was like, you know, 11 years younger than this, but uh, like there, there was almost nothing for me. No, no. I mean, I don't know about nothing. Well, almost nothing for me as, as, as good as having um, a moment in a classroom that really connects. Mm-hmm. You know, where you can see it resonate with the students. Not and I used to think it was because I was giving them knowledge because I didn't really understand the lenses and the fact that that's you know, they're not empty vessels and so forth, but I was younger, so um, but when you know, whatever the thing I retweeted earlier today about that just, just two kind of teachers is ones that that um show you how smart they are and there's other types mm-hmm. that show you how smart the students are, right? And uh I think that Anything that is a deficit mindset, which is still like the prevailing mindset in education, not just here, but just in education in general. Um, uh, Whereas like an asset-based mindset or strengths-based, whatever you want to call it, um, anything that really just sees that every student um, has the capacity to be really transcendent And, you know, the educator can work towards finding their way to having that be expressed. Um, And I think that that's really important. And I think that too much of education, I think a lot of it is corporate influence. A lot of it is, you know, the accountability movement. A lot of it is that what's taken a lot of the, you know, they've taken the ability to be great out of it. And then they say, look at them. They're not very good at it. What's wrong Mm -hmm. with them? um I mean this is this is very intentional um (laughs) so you know I don't know I'm worried because I think one of the things I'm worried about after all this is they'll try to say well look at what you were able to do at home so we don't have to support you in the classroom Mm -hmm. in the building as much as we need you know as much as they need to especially in higher ed like this." you know, I'm, 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 I'm concerned about that mm-hmm. um, because there are people sitting around watching this, thinking about how they can profit off of it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and the people who they're already profiting off of it in some way. So, <laughs> right. um, I'm concerned. Let's put it that way.
1: Yes. And I would say you're not unfounded in that.
0: Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, To sort of tie off the knot here, I always say that on the show, I don't know why, um, but I really think that um, bilingual education and the way that um, a lot of people in vulnerable communities are really going to have a lot of trouble, um, not just not being uh Having access to lessons, but also the full community of school, as we right. were talking about, mm-hmm. um, is really what's what's being ignored. I, I don't know what article I was reading recently that said that people assume that all um, oh, these kids just don't like school. It's like, well, a lot of the time they don't like individual teachers <laughs> who aren't very mm-hmm. nice to them, um, mm-hmm. but they love being in the school around their okay. friends, and they don't have that, and that's the part that I think is ignored. You know, um, and when people say people are going to look at results to between like, let's say 2019 and 2021 testing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and not that I think testing is all that about, but they're going to look at it. So I'm right. just like, they're going to look at it. Right. Um, and if there is a, a noticeable, you know, decline from 19 to 21, they're going to say it's because of a certain type of instruction that was missing, but mm-hmm. they're going to ignore the community aspect of the school. Life. Right. But that's going to be a huge part of why they struggled, and it's not, you know, it's going to call, it's going to come to critical pragmatists to bring that to the fore when that, because that conversation is going to happen. You know, it's right. going to happen. Mm-hmm. So it's up to you all to do it, and I have faith that you all will be able to do so.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, just to, as you say, tie off the knot about the community aspect of school. Um, I remember, I'll never forget this, um, how much our school community meant and means to our students that on the last day of school, we would always do a parade to say goodbye to the fifth graders going into sixth grade. Because again, I taught in elementary school. And every year that I was there, kids would be bawling on the last day of school and you think why are these kids crying and it's because they're going to miss school that they love their teachers and they love their friends and school is a safe place for them here um even with all of its imperfections and that's how life-giving um the school environment was for them and that's how much it meant to them that they Lines and lines. We have about a thousand students, um, elementary school students at our school, be bawling going to the bus line, and so all that to say is that's what I not like the crying, but that's what I love about education is the power to not only harness the mind but also the heart and our actions for good um, together.